From Types and Symbols, this is The Conflict Audible. I'm Ivan. I'm Livy. And today, White and Blacks, Part 2. In Part 1, we spoke with Kevin Burton about the abolitionist origins of the Adventist Church, and with Ben Baker about Ellen White's changing approach to race relations. She never changed her view on the full equality of all people, but due to the conditions in the South, she did advocate for Adventists to work within many of the constraints of segregation. And we left off with Ben sharing that there's a continuing debate about whether or not the changes she advocated for were ultimately better or worse. Today, we're going to explore the results of that shift. And one particular example of this debate, whether segregating for mission was a good thing or not, that took place in the early 1900s, while Ellen White was still around. My name is Douglas Morgan, historian of American religious history and Adventism and church history in general. Doug teaches at Washington Adventist University, though he's currently on leave while he works as an assistant editor on the Encyclopedia of Seventh-day Adventists. And one of Doug's areas of focus has been an Adventist church in Washington, D.C., the first one. Well, the first Seventh-day Adventist congregation in Washington, D.C. was interracial from the start. The church started as a city mission in 1887 and was officially organized in 1889 with about 26 members. At this point, the large majority of African Americans still lived in the South. This was before what is often termed the Great Migration uh, in the 20th century. I say that to say that Washington, D.C. at this point, when the church was organized in 1889, had the largest African American population of any city in the nation. And because of the relatively better opportunities for education, for employment in education and in the federal government, it had a large well-educated, progressive, African-American community. And James Howard was very much part of that. He was a graduate of Howard University at the age of 18, summa cum laude. He got an MD a degree about three years later, again at the very uh, highest uh, ranking of his class. But he did not really practice medicine at least uh, as his major employment, but rather took a position in the federal government. And uh, he accepted Adventism probably in 1887, so even before there was a congregation, while it was still a city mission. He is almost certainly the first African-American in Washington, D.C. to embrace the Adventist message and one of the very first uh, period Dr. Howard was a significant player in the congregation, who Doug says had a great influence on it. And with his help, the church grew. And by 1899, 10 years after its official organization, it had about 150 members, about 100 white and 50 black. So this is highly unusual. It was not unusual at all for Adventism in its early decades to have uh, a few black members here and there but when you have a large contingent of both races, this is where it becomes much more unusual. In 1899, an Adventist revivalist evangelist spends some time at the church, and his reports to the General Conference capture the rarity of the situation. And in one of his reports to uh, the General Conference, his monthly report, he said, this church is a miracle 
of the living God composed as it is of the two races. And they went on to say, and I'm paraphrasing now, that the other churches around, he's referring to churches of other denominations and other groups, look upon this with kind of amazement. For those first 10 years, this congregation had white and black members worshiping together, and they were committed to this during the Supreme Court's Plessy versus Ferguson separate but equal ruling, at a time that is considered one of the lowest points of race relations in American history. So they were consciously, not only self-consciously committed to the interracial ideal, but as a witness against a society that was rapidly becoming more segregated, more racially oppressive. And they saw this as an important part of what it meant to be an Adventist, to follow the truth fully. They felt it would be hypocritical to do otherwise. Doug says that from the start, Dr. Howard was very alert to what was going on in Adventism more broadly because the denomination was still in its early stages. And Dr. Howard's experience gives us a window into what it was like for a black person in the middle of Adventism's establishment of racial policies. This was the decade of Edson White's mission to the South, and the Washington congregation actually had formed prior to when that was launched. So every, a lot of things are fluid in terms of race relations in the church. A few months after the congregation had formed, in November of 1889, Dr. Howard read an article in the Review about a camp meeting in Nashville. And one of the Adventist leaders was saying that when the white people who were interested in the Adventist message, but they saw people of both races on the campground, and it, it turned them away. And they felt that they hadn't been as successful as they would like to have been. And this was Elder Robert Kilgore. He was suggesting that for the sake of mission, things be handled separately. This is the same Robert Kilgore after whom the Kilgore Doctrine is named, and who Ellen White sharply disagreed with in 1889. When Dr. Howard saw that, he wrote to the General Conference President, O.A. Olson, and he wrote that if we compromise with this worldly hatred that Americans call prejudice, while professing to have the love of Christ in our hearts, to have the purest light of the gospel, to be looking for the early advent of the Savior, and to be keeping the commandments, they would consider us, that is, people on the outside of the church, would consider us to be the most pronounced hypocrites of all professing Christians. In other words, Adventists of anybody should be the most dedicated to not allowing what he would call worldly compromise with racial prejudice to come into the church. So he's protesting this policy of expedience, racial separation for expedience that is being suggested in the review. O.A. Olson wrote Dr. Howard back, and Dr. Howard sent along a second letter in which he shared that he and his wife had been visiting in the home of Rosetta Douglas Sprague. Rosetta was the daughter of Frederick Douglas. Her father was still alive, but he was uh, the ambassador to Haiti at this uh, point. Rosetta had been a college classmate of Dr. Howard's wife, Belle, at Oberlin in Ohio. And in his letter to O.A. Olson, 
Dr. Howard reports that he and his wife were trying to get Rosetta interested in Bible studies. And she manifested some interest. But he reports to Elder Olson that there was another lady who was from Louisville who happened to be there in the conversation. And this lady said she wasn't sure, but she had heard that in Louisville, Kentucky, the uh, Adventists had separated on account of race. So Dr. Howard, in his letter to Olson, says, well, you can imagine what a wet blanket, that's the term he used, a wet blanket that threw over our attempts to share our beliefs and interest Rosetta Douglas Sprague in the message. Doug describes Dr. Howard as being gung-ho for Adventism, and Dr. Howard saw tremendous opportunity for Adventism to grow among this educated class of African Americans in the major cities along the Atlantic. But he says it's not going to happen, even though he'd only been Adventist for a couple of years. It's like he was uh, rooted and grounded. Nothing was going to shake him out. He says, I can't be very confident because the first question they ask is, well, where, do, where does this uh, church stand on, on the race question? So I can't be a very effective witness if, if we have this kind of expedience policy that I'm reading about in the review. Rosetta did end up joining the Adventist church, but Dr. Howard's concern about this demonstrates his level of interest in this issue. Another thing that helped Dr. Howard and the Washington congregation on their perspective was that W.C. White sent him a copy of the same pamphlet that inspired Edson White to start the Morning Star, the written-up version of Ellen White's 1891 talk titled Our Duty to the Colored People, in which she spoke very firmly about racial equality. Ellen White had also visited the Washington church, even conducted a week of prayer there. I almost forgot that. She became personally acquainted, and her son as well, with that congregation and and, uh, James Howard as an individual. And so anyway, W.C. White says, you know what, even though the printing of the pamphlet with this talk in it really was never designed for mass distribution, let's make sure that we send a copy to Dr. Howard. Well, Dr. Howard already had a great deal of uh, highest regard for Ellen White. But when he got this, it it just strengthened his convictions about her as a true prophet. And uh, he and the others in that congregation, I mean, he was kind of a thought leader. So his way of, of seeing things was very influential. They became very enthusiastic about Ellen White because to them, it could not be clear that she was teaching these advanced views on racial equality that they believed were central to the gospel. But as time passed, Edson, inspired by the same pamphlet, headed to Mississippi, had a rough time of it. And as Ben shared with us earlier, Ellen began to temper her statements on racial equality. So as racial conditions worsened and her own son and the group he was working with were were facing uh, a a violent response to their mission, then she begins to write things that are more in favor of carefully, not even through an entire region, but where the racial antagonism is so intense that, that the only way to reach both races without 
triggering violence would be to, to operate along separate racial lines. And so she begins to say words to this effect that this is necessary and we need to be guarded about making inflammatory uh, statements about racial equality that would stir up the, uh, the white population of the South and so forth. This shift in Ellen's perspective was one factor in what emerged as one of the most intricate local church crises I've ever heard of, which was that while some of the white members and some of the black members were deeply committed to the interracial vision of the church, some were not so enthused about it. And then the organizational leadership began to get involved. In 1901, during the annual tent evangelism, there were two white pastors who preached at the meetings. They were finding that the attendance was really coming from the African-American sector of the population. They were enthused about it. Uh, the Black people who were part of the church were the ones who were most fervent about uh, inviting their friends and neighbors. And they began to see this phenomena that had been reported in Tennessee and elsewhere, that when potential white uh, interests or converts, uh, when they begin to see a large number of, of, of black people coming in, then they don't come back if they come in to the tent in the first place. A.G. Daniels had just been elected president of the General Conference a few months before this, and he visits Washington to see this for himself. He finds that it's true, and he determines that the best way to handle this situation is to conform to the customs of segregation. Now, I mentioned Washington, D.C. as a center for black population and black culture, really, a couple of decades before Harlem becomes the, the famous center for that. Washington is really the center for literary flowering and intellectual leadership and so forth. And most of, of the churches are segregated. And there, there are many large black congregations of other denominations. And Daniel's observes this and he says, well, that, you know, that's the way we ought to do it. And just thereby cut through any uh, controversy about this. So he devises a plan. There's some political and organizational maneuvering that Daniels ends up doing, but he ultimately ends up taking a pretty direct hand in the Washington, D.C. church. So his plan is to bring in two evangelists, one white, one black. This is for the 1902 summer evangelism effort. And they would hold separate uh, meetings, separate tents. And they would each presumably win some new believers. And then when it was over, the existing church would divide. And the white members of that church would join with the new believers won by Elder Washburn. And then those who came in through the preaching of Louis C. Sheaf, who was the black evangelist, they, along with the, the uh, black people who are members of the original Washington congregation, they would form a separate black church. Sheaf was amazingly successful. About six years before, he had been a Baptist minister, and he was already widely recognized for his effectiveness as a pastor and an evangelist. John Harvey Kellogg said, we don't have a white minister that can even begin to stand next to 
Sheaf was one of the earliest African Americans to be ordained as a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And even though it wasn't official, he was quickly looked to as the leader of the black work. But in Washington in 1902, it was like his, really his breakthrough moment. They had black newspapers, of course, who really celebrated him. But even in the white-owned newspapers, the Washington Post, and there was the Washington Evening Star and several others, they wrote articles, you know, thousands hear him. And uh, they would uh, talk about how there were people of both races at these meetings, remarkably enough. Meanwhile, Elder Washburn was not doing very well. And it's not even clear whether he had any converts at all from his efforts. Whereas Sheaf, thus we can put it together, by the end of the follow-up from the summer evangelism, about 80 were baptized. And at least 15, more than a tiny handful, but still a minority, were white. So Sheaf is actually baptizing more white people than Washburn. Daniel's plan was to split the church after these meetings, but it turned out that the white members of the existing congregation were split on whether or not they wanted to split. So Sheaf decided not to support the split. Washburn complained, and Daniel's was upset, and the church ended up splitting anyway. The separation of the congregation proceeded, but about 40 people formed what became known as the Memorial Church under Elder Washburn's leadership, and probably, again, it's, the numbers are a little hard to pin down, but maybe 30 to 35 of the white members stayed with the original church, which then took the name First Church. It still has that name to this day, First Church uh, in Washington, D.C. And a few months into that, Callstrom, the elder, reported that we have 122 black and 46 white members in the congregation. So there's still a significant interracial component, even though the ratio has swung pretty strongly. This split didn't solve things, though. And complicating this was that a decision was made to move the headquarters of the General Conference to Washington, D.C. So in the summer of 1903, then, here is this move. And now this setting where there's this racial drama that is ongoing now becomes the headquarters town for Adventism. And there is a self-consciousness about the fact that we want the pattern or the mold for the work. We want to be setting it here. And it's still an open question, though, as to what the mold will be. What will the pattern be? Because with Sheaf and that first church, there is still an opportunity to bear a witness to the surrounding society that is impressive to the black population, but also to white and, and others who are more forward thinking on the racial issue. Adventism, I would suggest, had an opportunity to get race relations right, or at least closer to the gospel in a way that maybe would be like health. One option, which certainly would not have been without costs, would be to follow 
what Dr. Howard was saying and to encourage the first church in its interracial status, but also to build up work among the African-American community in Washington and to do it in a way that would be compelling to the educated thinking class of black people and that the influence of that would ripple out to the nation. The first church, the integrated one, decided that the next summer tent meeting would involve another attempt at having a white and black evangelist, but that as part of the meeting, they would teach new converts the doctrines of the church and include within that the matter of racial equality. And fellowship on an equal basis in the same congregation. So everybody, uh, I guess, was agreed that the initial step, it's a good idea for each race to have someone that they can connect with in terms of that racial cultural divide as a starting point, but then to lead them into that as part of the truth. Whereas the other mold or the other pattern, uh, which Elder Daniels was basically behind, uh, was to have the separation. Daniels ended up convincing Sheaf to start a new congregation, which was called the People's Church, meaning that there were now three churches. The plan starts off okay, but there are complications when the black congregation needs a church building and the administration doesn't prioritize it. It drags on for a very long time, and it seems particularly unfair because the administration did prioritize a new building for the white church. By 1906, Sheaf basically had decided that this is not working. From his perspective, here he has labored so hard, he was preaching incessantly. He had built up one church and then started an entirely new one. So he's bringing people in, the, ch- he, the church is growing through his work. And so you give the white church $10,000, which really was not bringing in very many, if any, new people and nothing for the black church. Uh, Even Elder Daniels would later admit that he should have taken a stronger hand with the General Conference Committee and not allowed that injustice to go on as long as it did. It was then compounded, though, by something else. And this was the real crisis point as to what's going to happen with this opportunity for Adventism in Washington, D.C. to show what it means to bring the gospel to bear on racism, on American original sin, even though there had been that accommodation to a segregated pattern in 1902, I would contend that there was still another opportunity. Doug thinks that there were a few ways the administration could have handled this. If they weren't going to support integrated churches and schools and sanitariums, they could have made a proportional commitment to providing a black-oriented school and health clinic. In the process of moving the church headquarters to D.C., they had a campaign for $150,000. And Doug suggests that they could have supported black institutions as part of that. I wouldn't want to venture a dollar number, but let's say they had included in their big plans to make Washington, D.C., Tacoma Park the thriving center of Adventism for the world, if they had included a strong component of building up black institutions as well as white, that could have been impressive. 
But that just was not part of the agenda. In 1906, Sheaf confronted the General Conference and asked if his members would be allowed to study, get treatment, and find employment at the new Adventist institutions. Were those new institutions also going to be for them, for black people? And if not, then maybe it would make more sense for them to keep their tithes and offerings and use them to advance the work in their own racial community. It was kind of like an absolute no when it comes to keeping your your tithes and offerings. And then they were kind of evasive as to the question of whether uh, the people from Sheaf's congregation would have access to the sanitarium and the school. But really, it was absolutely clear to anybody that they were just trying to avoid saying the obvious, that no. They tried to say, well, you know, those are separate from the general conference. They have their own boards. So, you know, you'd have to talk to them. Well, but to them, it was the same people. Uh, The general conference administrators were also heading the boards of these institutions. I think the treasurer chaired the sanitarium, but I think Daniels himself was over the school at the beginning. So that was just disingenuous. So in 1907, Sheaf's church, the People's Church, withdrew from the denomination. And in Doug's view, this is the first major racial crisis in the church's history. Because while there was a lot of confusion throughout, the General Conference had taken a racially separate policy, not only in terms of congregation, but also in terms of institutions. Now, I hasten to say that they weren't saying that all Adventist institutions in the North and the Far West should be segregated but they were setting a tone and as racially backwards ideas if i can for lack of a better term right now are actually winning the day in american culture in the first couple of decades of the 20th century it does set up a pattern for separation between the races and alienation to become ingrained in the denomination as a whole, not just the South. There were also a significant number of people in Sheaf's church. And had the first church, the mixed church, decided to join Sheaf in leaving the formal Adventist denomination, Doug estimates that it would have accounted for a loss of 20% of the total Black membership in Adventism, which also raises the question of whether the Adventist church would have split into two racially separate denominations, as many other denominations did at the time. As we mentioned earlier, this is an intricate situation. In 1913, six years later, Sheaf's congregation actually reconciles and rejoins the denomination. But pretty soon afterward, in 1916, it splits off again after the administration hinders the creation of an educational institution for the Black congregation. But it only partially splits. Some members choose to stay. And this became then the nucleus of a, another black, fully Seventh-day Adventist or conference-connected Seventh-day Adventist congregation. They called uh, themselves the Ephesus Church. Today it's called the DuPont Park Church. It's one of the older historic black Adventist congregations in Washington. So the cause, the Adventist cause was not entirely lost among black Washingtonians, but it was severely hampered. And the enormous almost breathtaking possibilities that had been there were not really realized. This predicament that the Washington congregation and later congregations were in is pretty astounding in its complexity. And while it seems like the church organizationally missed an opportunity to set a good model for race relations, 
the political maneuverings and power struggles and distrust did ultimately set a kind of model for race relations in Adventism. A lot of the motifs of the story of Black Adventism were present in that situation, and in that way, the story of the Washington, D.C. churches is a very familiar one. Except for one thing. Unlike the struggles that were to come, Dr. Howard and Louis Schieff and A.G. Daniels and all these administrators, they had access to Ellen White herself. Not just her writings, but the living prophet. They could ask her for counsel. She, whom God had used to establish the church organization, who had spoken on behalf of God for the building up of Adventism, she was still around during all of this. And if there was ever a tricky predicament for which having a living prophet around would be helpful, this really seems like a strong contender. But Ellen's view on the situation in Washington, D.C. seems to have been quite unclear. Doug says that because of how things began to unfold in the South, as experienced by her son, Edson, Ellen's guidance seemed to be shifting. Initially, her pamphlet, Our Duty to the Colored People, seemed to provide a clear directive for how to be a congregation. Dr. Howard and the Washington congregation, that was gospel to them. They took that and they, they held to it. But now reports are coming of, of letters or testimonies that have been given, and it's becoming a murky picture. And some of the ministers would tell them that, well, things have changed, and Mrs. White has said this and this, but it was not clearly defined in black and white, so to speak. Ellen White's approach seemed to be reluctance to make a pronouncement. Doug says that it seems Ellen wanted people to work out for themselves how to apply the principles that she had given. She didn't want them to need her to spell things out. And part of me thinks this is cool. An overattachment to trying to figure out what Ellen White would say about every situation seems like it could lead to a lack of prayerful and biblical thinking. But at the same time, I find it sort of frustrating. She spelled other things out. And in this situation, her principles seem to be contradicting themselves. So how would people know how to apply them? In March of 1902, we have the first of a series of letters from Dr. Howard to Ellen White and to A.G. Daniels. And Dr. Howard asks Ellen White, we are being told that what you said before about equality, that there's been a change. Is that true? And then secondly, if so, would it be wrong if some of the white people wanted to remain with the black, you know, if there is to be a split. But she did not reply. Uh, the secretaries like Sarah McEntifer, in some instances, W.C. White, but, you know, they would give a response like, you know, well, Sister White is really very overwhelmed with this and that, or she has given out the principles and so she, she just wants people to find their way in applying it. See, she didn't want to pronounce on the situation. Doug says that Dr. Howard had a very high regard for Ellen White, and while he felt strongly that her earlier messages about integrated congregations were right, he was willing to believe that, as with the story of Israel wanting a king, some accommodation might be necessary. 
Were she to have responded, suggesting that they should split, it seems like he would have been willing to accept that. In 1904, Ellen White lived in Tacoma Park for a few months to give encouragement and counsel to the building up of the new institutions. And while there, she spoke at the mixed church. She interacted with the members and remarked on how the congregation had people of both races mingled together. But she makes no big pronouncement. She also preached at the People's Church, Elder Sheaf's Church. And, you know, she writes some things in passing about how, well, there's kind of some racial issues going on here. She writes back to one of her secretaries in California at Elmshaven, and we hope that it will be worked out. Doug notes that in that letter to her secretary, she gives no indication that she's going to try to help solve any of it. A few years later, in 1907, when the Black Church was in the process of breaking away from the denomination, Ellen wrote a testimony to Louis Sheaf to give some counsel. But her comments were less about whether it was right for his church to break off, and more about his interactions with Kellogg, who was himself at odds with the church organization, and about Sheaf's relationship with his wife. I mean, she didn't really even come right out and say, you're wrong for trying to go on this congregationalist type of model. She just said, Elder Sheaf, I'm bidden to say to you, stop right where you are. So she's rebuking him, apparently, for this sort of rebellion against uh, church uh, leadership. But it's really those two things. Stay away from Kellogg and Battle Creek and work on your marriage, (laughs) basically. Those are the things that she thought were most important for him. One other thing that was in the letter that Sheaf picked up on was that it started off with Ellen saying that she developed these concerns through visions of the night season, as well as from her conversations with certain church leaders. Because of that, Sheaf felt that Ellen had based her advice on what Daniels and others had shared with her, and that she didn't even bother to get his perspective on the situation first. Now, Daniels tried to say that, oh, Sister White, what you meant was that you saw those conversations between yourself and the other church leaders. That was all in vision, right? Right? Well, you know, it's it's like, um, it would be nice if they had said, no, 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 you're confused, Daniels. Uh, that's not what, what he, but kind of like nothing. Again, they avoided it. They didn't really, they, they didn't confirm him, though, on that. But anyway, that's how he tried to represent it. In any case, neither Ellen's letter nor Daniel's explanation helped reconcile Sheaf. And even if it had, Her letter didn't clearly address the questions of racial equality and what that should or shouldn't look like in a real-life context. But eventually, Ellen White did answer that question. In the middle of Sheaf's process of leaving the denomination, the first church, that's the mixed church, themselves wondered whether they should remain loyal to the conference or join Sheaf's church in creating a kind of independent Black Adventist denomination. Well, Dr. Howard was instrumental in saying, no, let's not leave the organized work. The current leaders don't own it. They may make mistakes, but we shouldn't leave it. But it kept boiling over and over. The General Conference would do something that would get the First Church people upset, and the thing would fire up again. In 1908, A.G. Daniels is away from D.C., traveling for the church, and Elder Evans, the administrator who's managing the situation, writes Daniels saying that only Sister White can solve this. In terms of Ellen White's specific position on this controversy in Washington, 
there was ambiguity. She had made a number of statements, talks had been given, I think it's fair to say articles had written, but not really in a direct teaching mode. This would be more along the lines of letters and councils that had been shared with ministerial workers and so forth. But there was no firm and general recognition or agreed upon. That was just definite. And so Evan says only she can solve this. And, and, you know, like we have to entertain the possibility that they, that is the first church people might be right. Maybe we, maybe we as leaders have, have misunderstood. So finally in October of 1908, Ellen White does finally feel led by God to say something directly to this situation. And here is a portion of that testimony that Ellen White sent in October of 1908, addressed to our churches in Washington, D.C. There is a work to be done, both for the white and the colored people in Washington and in the neighboring states. Many obstacles will arise to retard this work. Inconsiderate or premature movements would bring no real satisfaction and would make it far more difficult to carry forward any line of work for the colored people. The work in behalf of this people has been sadly neglected, and the powers of darkness are prepared to work with intensity of effort against those who take up this work. From the light given me, I know that every injudicious movement made in or about Washington or in other parts of the southern field to encourage the sentiment that the white and the colored people are to associate together in social equality will mean more in retarding our work than any human mind can comprehend. There is too much at stake for human judgment to be followed in this matter. If the conference should say that no difference is to be recognized and no separation is to be made in such relationship between the white people and the colored people, our work with both races would be greatly hindered. If it should be recommended and generally practiced in all our Washington churches that white and black believers assemble in the same house of worship and be seated promiscuously in the building, many evils would be the result. Many would say that this should not be and must not be. But who will press the question of entire exclusion? Both white and colored people have the same creator and are saved by the redeeming grace of the same savior. Christ gave his life for all. He says to all, ye are bought with a price. God has marked out no color line and men should move very guardedly lest we offend God. The Lord has not made two heavens, one for white people and one for colored people. There is but one heaven for the saved. I think it's very important to look at that in detail, or at least hone in on certain details that might not be obvious at a first reading without awareness of the historical context, which namely was that the people in the first church were insisting that any congregation that did not do what they did and did not encourage interracial equality and meeting together in a fashion where there's just no distinction made is in defiance of God's plan. They're going against inspired counsel, both in the scripture and in the spirit of prophecy. So some of them 
would be rather strident about this and very, you know, judgmental. So Ellen White is saying that if it should be recommended and generally practiced in all our Washington churches. In other words, if it were known in Washington that this characterized every Adventist congregation, that she thinks would be bad because it would basically be a death knell to reaching the white population. Uh, and I'm reading a little bit in there, but I think that that's, that's clear. But on the other hand, she is not condemning the mixed race church either. And the social equality part is important because it's a term that can be understood in different ways, but in the minds of many white people, basically social equality meant a context in which interracial marriage or sexual relationships are prone to or encouraged. Just the very fact that you would be sitting with the races mixed, that you, you would be rubbing shoulders, a white woman and a black man, even if they're not really, you know, together. One is one family and one's another, but I think it may be very difficult for us to understand. But in that context, social equality was like horrors. I think we have to recognize, well, boy, I, I wish Ellen White had said something else. I wish her counsel had been different. But I think it's important to understand the nuance. And so when Ellen White now comes at least considerably more explicitly about what ought to be done in Washington, then that kind of quiets things down and through gradual attrition, the first church becomes pretty much a, a black church, you know, within a decade or so. And uh, you sort of have the pattern of segregation uh, at the congregational level that would predominate. We've talked a little bit in previous episodes about how Ellen White's understanding grew over time. One of my favorite examples of this so far is one that Alden Thompson, a longtime teacher at Walla Walla University, has shared, which is that Ellen's description of John the Baptist's life goes from being one without pleasure, sorrowful and self-denying, to being one in which he enjoyed his life of simplicity. But in this situation, regarding the race relations within the Adventist church, it's more challenging for me. It's sort of a muddled trajectory. I was pleasantly surprised to discover that Ellen White was much more passionate and radical about racial equality than I had originally known. But her shift to pragmatism is honestly a little disappointing. I understand all the practical reasons why a shift was helpful— and I also understand, from what I've been told, that Adventism was still overwhelmingly better than most Christian denominations when it comes to this issue. Most denominations split over this issue. But Ellen White's initial idealism was based on things she claimed God had shown her. Did God change his mind, or did Ellen misunderstand him at first? If we were to evaluate her simply based on where things were when she died, I would find it somewhat unsatisfying. But what followed in Adventism, the result of her counsels and how they bore out, are just as important to understand. I was born July 4, 1930, in the Bronx. This is Pastor Calvin B. Rock. However, my parents were living in Harlem, so that's where I grew up. 
until age 11. He was raised Adventist. His mother was one of the clerks at their church, and he attended church school. His grandmother was also an Adventist. And at age 15, she was one of the original 16 students at Oakwood Industrial Training School then, the 41st of the schools opened by various religious denominations for the children of the recently freed slaves. The founding of what is now Oakwood University in Huntsville, Alabama, was one of the most significant results of the Southern work. It opened in 1896 with the full support of Ellen White, who even provided personal funds toward its establishment. Pastor Rock and his family are part of the legacy of Black Adventism, the result of the Kilgore Doctrine and Ellen's eventual acceptance of it. And while he's just one voice of many, he was both a witness to and a participant in the trajectory of Black Adventism after Ellen White's death. And that's why we wanted to hear from him. What really was her legacy after all? What was the result of her turn from idealism to pragmatism? When he was seven, Pastor Rock spent some time at Oakwood while his mom was studying for a one-year certificate. And in visiting that area, he became familiar with the segregation and racial injustice in the country. I was introduced to colored-only, white-only bathrooms and drinking fountains and all of the other indignities to which African-Americans were subjected at that time. When he was 11, his mom moved him and his sister to Los Angeles, and there his understanding grew as he read the newspapers. When I was 13 and 14 and even younger and certainly older, I never saluted the flag. I never repeated one nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all. I, I just couldn't. And I wondered why anybody black would do that. Of course, we weren't black. <laughs> we were just Negroes, okay? Uh, but I wondered why, you know, how could these people do that? It wasn't true. I was reading in the newspapers about our soldiers returning from war, being hanged and shot and and mistreated, and I knew all of, I was reading all about these, these horrible mutilations going on. At this time, most of the Adventist schools and the church structure was itself functioning under the restrictions of what some called separate but equal. So here I am in the 40s, and our church, while not in California, as harshly as in some other places in the South, let's say, was still functioning with that philosophy of separate but equal. There were no signs out, but it was obvious that the church was not embracing its African-American community in, in many instances. And our schools still had their quotas, AUC, CUC, Andrews, and all of them all of them, with the exception, I believe, of PUC. I believe PUC was different even from the beginning. And uh, I, I wondered why we could sing on, we are all one body, you know, we are not divided, all one body, we, in the song Onward Christian Soldiers. I, could, I said to myself when I was 11, 12, 13, 14, how could these people say that? It's not true. And how could they say it on the Sabbath? It's not true. And I didn't do a lot of talking, but in my own little heart, I wondered. 
Pastor Rock says that the messages he would hear in church at that time were mostly about how Jesus would be coming back soon. And when he did, he would straighten that all out. That people have to suffer, but one day they'd get to a better place. But he wasn't satisfied with that. When he was 18, he went to school at Oakwood and became a pastor in 1952, working in Georgia at first. He spent almost 20 years pastoring, with a few years of departmental work in there, before going back to Oakwood for 14 years to serve as the college president. During his ministry as a pastor, he spent most of his time working in regional conferences, which were and are separate administrative structures that first started in the 1940s to allow blacks to work for blacks, sort of a natural extension of the Kilgore Doctrine. The origins of these, and whether it was whites or blacks who really wanted to have separate conferences, is a topic that is somewhat outside the scope of this already broad-ranging episode. But it's important to know that it was one way of ensuring that blacks would be able to have an amount of self-determination in the work they were doing. During his pastoring and during his presidency, Pastor Rock continued to study. And it was during these studies that he came to learn more about Ellen White and the other pioneers— and he began to better understand the value of the structure of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. When I began to read and understand from the writings of Ellen White that that was not the position of our prophet, that her writings didn't, didn't drip with this kind of uh, negativity, that, that she, she was boldly contesting slavery and segregation after that. And the more I read the writings of Ellen White and the more I studied them, uh, the more comfortable I became with what was going on. I wasn't happy with it. And maybe comfortable is not the right word, but the more I began to understand how it is that our church was locked into this system and that it was a matter of human error in the system and not a basic uh, proposition or fundamental understanding of the Word of God and that I could be a Seventh-day Adventist and be proud to be a Seventh-day Adventist and still defend my ethnicity or still be proud of my ethnicity. And Ellen White's writings gradually opened up my understandings to human nature and the social circumstances and the legal circumstances and uh, the, the, the humanity that was involved in all of this. So when I got into my dissertation in my 40s and 50s, when I got into graduate school, I should say, I was able to put all that together, and hence I've written a couple of books. One is the latest, which was in 2018, printed by Andrews Press, Protest and Progress, in which all of this is laid out and explained. In his studies, Pastor Rock learned about the work the Quakers had been doing as the first group to bring religion to the slaves. He learned about the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, a group from England. And he also learned about some of the stuff that we've shared earlier in this show. And then I found out later on that uh, this nobody told me, but even in the beginnings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, we had an abolitionist who was the first president, John Byington. Then I read what Ellen White said and what Charles Fitch did and what Uriah Smith did and so many of the other pioneers, how in the early days the review was fighting against the, the rigors of, of injustice and the indignities of slavery. And so, you know, I learned. 
I never heard anybody preaching about it. Even African-American preachers were all like everybody else talking about what was going to happen one day when Jesus comes. But as I began to read history and get the information, that sure was um, eye-opening. And uh, well, I was proud. I was happy. I was happy, but it made me investigate what happened. We began with James White and Ellen White and John Byington and Uriah Smith and uh, all these people doing, saying these things and even the review um, castigating uh, slavery and slave owners and, and uh, demanding and crying out for justice. I, I, I was delighted that pioneers of, of my church did that. But as again, I, I, mean, I had to wonder, well, what happened? <laughs> How could we start like that and wind up with our schools having quotas and all the horror stories that I was hearing as a teenager and uh, even into my 20s and 30s uh, that were happening at some of our schools and, and our churches and being a pastor and having my members tell me they wanted to transfer to a white church, even Detroit in 1960, 1967, wanting to transfer and being told by the pastor that the only way that they could accept it was the conference committee would vote it. You know, it was just horrid. I became, I, I was very happy to learn that we began with such fervor and my dissertation, um, not just the thesis on the demand, but my PhD dissertation both dealt with that issue and describes how we got to be so theologically conservative and how that theological conservatism affected our structural um, arrangements and uh, how that structural arrangement stifled mission in the black community, making it not only legitimate, but making it wise to structure regional conferences and how those regional conferences have more than justified that move in terms of, of mission and growth in the black communities and uh, how that, that benefit has given rise to other things that today make us who we are in the church. Again, an in-depth exploration of regional conferences is not something we can really get into here. But Pastor Rock's perspective is similar to that of Kilgore and Charles Kinney. Kinney was actually one of the very first to suggest regional conferences in the late 1880s. The perspective is that it's all about mission. Indigenous leadership is more effective than alien leadership. My conversation with Pastor Rock ended with him reading and commenting on some passages from a compilation of Ellen White's writings on this topic called The Southern Work. Her son Edson put it together, including her message, Our Duty to the Colored People, along with some of her articles in the review. And I'm reading now, This I do not covet, for the conflict has seemed to be continuous of late years. But I do not mean to live a coward or die a coward, leaving my work undone. I must follow in the master's footsteps. It has become fashionable to look down upon the poor and upon the colored race in particular. But Jesus, the master, was poor. He sympathizes with the poor, the discarded and oppressed. And she goes on. But that's a famous statement. 
in the beginning of that book, which really uh, presages the what she says in the rest of the book, which begins with the fact that she says on page 14 that whites have no right to exclude blacks from their worship. And on page uh, 42, she says, and this was in 1895, she says, as verily as God looked down upon the Hebrews, he looked down upon the Negroes and freed them from slavery. But she says on page 70 of the book, the time has not come. Now notice she's making a little shift. In 1891, she says, uh, we shouldn't exclude them from our presence and our services. But four years later, things were getting even worse. She says, but the time has not come to let them into our churches and our homes. And then in 1899, as I continue to track the dates on this, she becomes even more explicit. She says, do not have blacks congregating with whites. So she moves from a position in 1891, let them in. But by 1899, she says, oh, no, you can't do that because there's too much anger in the country. And remember, in 1896, just three years before, separate but equal had become, had become the law. And then in 1902, she goes to even another position, or she becomes even more explicit. She says, let whites work for the whites and blacks work for the blacks until God shows us a better way. So she moves from full acceptance to the position that allowed the church to live with separate but equal. And she said, we are in this country a separate but equal nation. And you can't expect to have white people coming to your church if blacks go in. And meanwhile, in 1889, at a camp meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, Charles Kinney, who became the first black pastor, walked out of a meeting, a camp meeting, where he and blacks were seated. In fact, they were asked to go to the back, so they left, and he protested. And there, the masks were off at that time. Every, everything was, was clear. We just couldn't have black people and white people worshiping and living together. And Ellen White said, let it be till the Lord showed us a better way. And then she said, in 1908, six years later, she says, this racial issue has always been a difficult one, a hard one, I think is the word she used, and I fear it will be until the Lord comes. And it looks like the Lord could come any day, any time, or certainly soon. And we can testify that it is still a hard matter. And we shouldn't be too surprised that it is, given that our prophet told us it would be. But we can learn to live together and love each other 
if we just, I believe, assume the posture that I've tried to enunciate, which is we're a flower garden and we're not homogenized and we must submit one to another and we can tolerate one another and not allow people to egg us on to doing things that are dangerous and destructive to the mission of the gospel. So, Ellen did capitulate, or shift, or revise her approach. And to be honest, I still find it a little puzzling that she claimed God felt a certain way about separation, and then later suggested separation was good. Something about that part of things doesn't sit well for me. But within the context of all the discrimination and violence that was happening at the time, it does seem that there was a lot of wisdom to that. Ultimately, Ellen and Adventism did help provide for a way forward that is remarkable. And it seems to me like maybe Ellen's greatest legacy on race was in advocating for blacks to determine for themselves how they wanted to participate in and grow Adventism. She didn't have all the answers. She criticized white leadership for their prejudice and worked to remove the barriers preventing the work of the gospel among blacks. But she cared most of all about mission and empowered people to figure things out for themselves. Since her death, it seems that we have been shown better ways than the ones she recommended at the time. It took work and protest, but our institutions and our churches did desegregate. Many other denominations split entirely over the issue of race. But in spite of many challenges, Adventism persists as the most racially diverse religious group in the United States. And Pastor Rock and many others have noted that there has continued to be progress in the church. It took time, but black individuals are in positions of leadership in prominent places. Out of the nine union presidents in the North American division, four of them are black. Just this year, a black man, Alex Bryant, became president of the division, and he's the second. The first, Charles Bradford, served from 1979 to 1990. One of the vice presidents of the General Conference, Ella Simmons, is a black woman. And back in 1990, a black man, George W. Brown, was nominated as president of the General Conference, though he chose to decline the nomination. And the Lord may yet show us an even better way. The Conflict Audible is produced by Types and Symbols, an independent creative studio as a companion to The Conflict Beautiful, a new hardcover NKJV edition of Ellen White's Conflict of the Ages series. We've also put together a reading plan to help you work your way through the Conflict of the Ages in a year. Learn more at theconflictbeautiful.com read. This episode was produced by me, Ivan Ruiz Knott, with help from Olivia Ruiz Knott, Alex Prouty, and Kevin Burton. Thanks as well to Tim Poyer for his input. Many thanks especially to our guests, Dr. Doug Morgan and Dr. Calvin Rock, for taking the time to talk to us for this episode, and to my co-founder, Mark Cook. And please, please know that people being on this show or helping out with it or being related to us does not in any way mean that they agree with everything or anything we say, nor does it mean that they endorse or support the conflict beautiful. They are just really nice people trying to help us do a good job at understanding and explaining Ellen. If you want to learn more about Ellen White from the people she entrusted with her estate, visit whiteestate.org. We are in no way affiliated with them, but they have a lot of great resources. Also, if you're a really nice person who can help us understand and explain Ellen, let us know. Did we get something wrong? Did we leave something out? Do you know a ton about something we've touched on? Did we miss an important point? Do you have questions? Do you just disagree? 
we probably want to talk to you. Visit theconflictaudible.com to get in touch. I found no evidence that Ellen White is black. And you know that if there's anybody who would love to say that she was black, it would be me. <laughs> I, I mean, I would just love, and you know, you never hear, you never hear the end of it. Um, <laughs> on my part, if I found out that anything about her was black. <laughs>